the inequality that we've talked about has helped contribute to a crisis that is now making inequality worse. How do we improve the condition of workers in general such that a pandemic like COVID doesn't result in disparate outcomes? The decisions that we as a country have made has not created the kind of resiliency that we need. Coronavirus has uncovered how one of the richest economies in the world remains incredibly fragile. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, one American capitalist's desperate attempt to save us from ourselves. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So the past few episodes, Nick, we've been focusing on the coronavirus pandemic, and it's not surprising that the uh, theme that uh, keeps coming to the surface is inequality. Yeah. And, you know, the the really interesting thing I've been, of course, uh, and lots of people have been thinking really carefully about the coronavirus's impact on our society. And you know, I think it's really clear that it basically magnifies the underlying vulnerabilities and conditions that made our economy fragile and less resilient. And, you know, we're just seeing what happens when you take jobs away from millions and millions of families that had been underpaid for 40 years and therefore had no savings. And, you know, an economy that was less unequal, where many more families had more economic resilience, we'd be in a very, very different spot. Uh, To say nothing of the other incredibly stupid things about our economy, like huge proportions of uh, families, particularly vulnerable workers, what we're now calling essential workers, uh, with no sick leave, for instance. So you've got this absolutely absurd circumstance where essential workers are staying on the job while sick, (laughs) infecting other people because to stay home means to go into bankruptcy. What we're seeing here are two interrelated crises that are feeding back on each other. There is a a massive health crisis uh, in the pandemic and a massive economic crisis. And one of the things that's apparent is that this rise of inequality, this this fragility that you were just talking about uh, in the economy with the vast majority of households actually left us more vulnerable to a pandemic. Right. Uh, Because you left people who just could not afford to stay home or who didn't have access to health care so that we couldn't actually stem this pandemic in the bud when we when it first started. At the same time, this uh, economic fragility has left our entire economy more fragile. And of course, this economic fragility feeds back into a public health crisis. The inequality that we've talked about for the past couple of years has helped contribute to a crisis that is now making inequality worse because the yeah. people who are who were vulnerable going into it 
are the ones who are being the hardest hit, both uh, in terms of health and uh, income. And we have two fantastic guests with us. Our old friend, Heather Boucher, who is the president and CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. And Michelle Holder, who's a professor of economics at John Jay College at City University of New York. Uh, and I think both of them are going to be able to shine a, a bright light on some of the harder to see or understand dimensions of this crisis. My name is Heather Boucher. I am the president and CEO of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. I'm thrilled to be on this podcast today. I had a book come out last fall called Unbound, How Inequality Constricts Our Economy and What We Can Do About It. And it seems rather apt for these tough economic times. Oh, golly. So Heather, <laughs> you and your group have been busy publishing. And in a recent report, you wrote that the new coronavirus has uncovered how even as one of the richest economies in the world, the United States remains incredibly fragile. And you outlined a set of key vulnerabilities we're facing right now uh, because of the massive inequality we've helped create. Why don't you start by running our listeners through those vulnerabilities? Certainly. I mean, I think it's really quite striking, Nick. You think about where the United States was just a couple of months ago, and it seemed like our economy, I mean, if you just looked on the, on the surface, our economy seemed strong. It seemed like, you know, we, we definitely had this very low unemployment rate. We were worried that wages weren't rising as fast as they should have given the low unemployment. But there were a lot of folks who didn't seem to think that there was much wrong with the economy. And yet there were millions who could see the underlying fragilities. And it is those that are now at the top of mind. We can see that first and foremost, this is a health crisis, right? This is a crisis that we are living through right now that is because of a virus going through our society. And yet we are one of the few nations in the United States that does not provide workers paid sick time or paid leave. So you have all of these people who were vulnerable to getting sick at work and then transmitting that disease to their colleagues, to their business clients, their customers, and then of course back home to their families. We also, of course, are uh, one of the only countries that does not make sure that everybody has access to healthcare. So another fragility um, that was longstanding, but that this pandemic underscores how important it is to make sure that everybody can make sure that they can get health care. I, I mean, and, and to be clear, for a huge proportion of families, even if they do have access to health care, it's ruinously expensive to use the system. Definitely. And there were all of these stories, especially at the beginning of the crisis, of people going in to see their doctor to ask, you know, oh, do I have this coronavirus? And then even though they had health insurance coming out with these very big expenses, you know, a real fragility, a real vulnerability. You know, these are these were specific fragilities for this crisis. But what it really underscores is that the decisions that we as a country have made on how to run our economy, on who should be making decisions about what's good for our people and our society, uh, has not created the kind of resiliency that we need. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about over the past few months is how too often we've pushed on to private actors and the markets the work that only government can do. And that's a longstanding fragility, right? And, and we can see it here right now that 
Well, we need a federal government that can craft a coherent, a consistent nationwide response. And yet we have gutted our government to such an extent that we still don't have testing for all who need it. We still don't have protective gear for all who need it, especially those at work. So those are some of the ways that we just we have these underlying fragilities, both in terms of you know, the conditions on the ground and how we think about our economy and who it's for and the role of government in our society. So I'm curious, Heather, how much less resilient is the typical American household heading into this recession than they were the last one? In the years since, household wealth has not recovered. Uh, wages have been flat. It seems that, that we're, we're even more fragile going to this than we were in 2007. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. You know, it's been decades of building fragility, growing fragility, <laughs> um, decades of, uh, you know, families, you know, in the middle class on down who have not experienced the kind of economic security that could prepare them to be resilient in a crisis. So we know from data from the Federal Reserve that somewhere around four in 10 uh, people don't have enough money in the bank to meet a $400 expense. If they, if they had one, they don't have four, they couldn't pull together $400 in cash for something unexpected. That speaks to a real lack of resiliency. And, you know, in the great recession, of course, people's home values had skyrocketed up and then they, a lot of people took on more debt to pay for homes or to take money out of their homes to use for other things. And while it is true that you know we're not in the middle of the same kind of housing bubble and um, debt hasn't skyrocketed, it is still the case that families remain highly leveraged, and they have uh, you know the added burdens now, of course, of student debt alongside mortgages and all the other kinds of credit. But you know, and you put the nail on the head here. While those at the very very top of the wealth distribution saw their wealth come back fairly quickly after the Great Recession within a couple of years of it ending. For the vast majority of American families, that that wasn't the case. And too many have still never recovered the wealth that they lost. And um, for many, they were only just now recovering the income that they had lost. So, which of course didn't allow them to build up that wealth over the past decade. And I just want to add one more point on that. Maybe we'll get to it, but I don't think it'd be emphasized enough those families and those workers and those small business owners who have the least to fall back on, who are going to be the first to put themselves and their their families in danger of, of um, contracting this coronavirus because they need to get back to work faster than anyone um, or get back to their, their small business. So I think that, you know, we think of these, we've often thought of economic security just as an economic issue, but this is this is a health issue as well. And, and that and that gets to another uh, issue that I think has been exacerbated uh, greatly over the past 15 years, and that is the way we've been shifting risk onto individuals. Um, you know that that's the whole gig economy in a nutshell. It's uh, it's just seems like such a more precarious world to live and work in than it was just 15 years ago. I think that's true. That economy where everybody's a so-called independent contractor, but really they work for a firm that sets the conditions, but then those firms don't pay into our unemployment insurance system, don't pay into people's social security, don't pay into the protections that provide people with that economic security for when they need it. 
And um, and then, of course, they're also not responsible uh, in many cases if that worker's hurt on the job or um, if they get sick and they need paid sick time. Or, or for health care. Yeah, or for health care. I had not considered that particular flavor of parasitism because those companies aren't in that system. And so they don't contribute into it. And now we bailed them out. Exactly. And and I'm glad we did. Yeah, we needed to, but, but it just... It, but it was yeah. one of those things when, you know, you'll find actually, if you really think about this crisis, uh, for me, it's been sort of a, every three days an epiphany of like, wait a minute. Wow. They didn't pay for that. And well, they didn't pay for right. that into these different systems. I mean, it really is a real... Um, uh, glossary of all the ways that these inequalities are playing out across our society and across our economy, where um, those with the most have not contributed to the common good, but yet, but they're getting bailed out. But they get bailed out, so it's it's a you know heads heads you win, tails I lose. Let's talk about some of the structural changes we need to do, not just to get through this recession, but to leave us in a better position. Uh, more resilient uh, after the recession? I mean, first, we need to make sure that we are connecting the dots between how we think about the health of this thing we call the economy and the health of the people that really are the economy. And so what are we doing to ensure that people can show up healthy and ready to work? Um, you know, uh, it's everything from paid sick days to access to health care and, uh, and making sure that people are safe on the job. One of the things that we've seen over time is that, you know, there have been questions around uh, food safety and safety of products that are connected to worker health and safety on the job. And we can really see that our lack of enforcement of occupational health and safety uh, rules and the lack of really thinking those through for the 20th century has made us especially weak. If you eat meat um, and you're watching the news now, you know that, uh, you know, a not insignificant share of meat production is not being done right now because those workers were getting sick because nobody was thinking about how to make sure that they stayed healthy and safe. That's one set of fragilities that we can address that are structural. A second is, um, and we've already mentioned this one as well, we have to think about what our what our uh, markets look like. You know, do we have industries that are competitive, where there's um, room for uh, new ideas, for entrepreneurs, for new faces, new voices, or are industries dominated by a big monopoly or oligopoly where they are um, able to extract, you know, a lot out of that market, you know, keep prices high and not allow competition? This is an issue that's been growing over time, but one I think is only going to magnify in importance as this crisis moves on and small businesses are unable to hang on. Again, what is the role of the public sector in our economy? And where is it appropriate for us to have collective responses, government responses, versus assuming that the market can solve every problem? And then the, the last one that, I'll, well, there's two more that I want to mention. One is we need to give workers a voice at work. And for too long, they haven't had it. And I know that, Nick, I'm sure you say this, I'm sure this comes up on every podcast, but you know, one of the unfun facts is that we have fewer people um, as a share of the private sector economy who are in unions today than we did before we made the right to collectively bargain legal in the 1930s. So it's like we never even created those laws that gave people the right to organize. And, um, you know, it's down in the single digits. And 
We know that unions can help protect people um, in the workplace. If we had more unions, we might have had less transmission of this virus. But that is a it's a structural feature of the economy, that balance of power between entities that's so important. And then finally, we have to raise taxes. And we gotta raise taxes at the top. We're gonna have to do it. And um, you know, the thing that gets me right now is that there are so many people who are able to telecommute and to use Zoom for their meetings or all these other great technical devices, get on conference calls, um, don't have to put their lives on the line. And those folks are disproportionately at the top end, the higher end of the economy and um, disproportionately white. Yet there's so many others who are risking their lives. And we need to have a conversation about how we are taxing at the top. Um, that's you know probably gonna include the very, very wealthy, and probably going to talk about you know undoing a lot of those tax cuts we did in 2017, right. but also in in prior years we have to fix this. Uh, our view is that pathogens are inevitable, but pandemics are a consequence of governing incompetence and a lack of preparation. I, I do think that it is shocking that South Korea had a, the, its first reported case of coronavirus on the same day as the United States of America. But today, uh, as, of, as of today, they've had 10,800 cases and 250 deaths. And we've had uh, a million cases and closing in on 60,000 deaths. To be clear, like we, we are a bigger country, but if you do your divided buys, we're still 10 times worse than them. The difference between our two societies' capacity to address a crisis like that is something that Americans really need to reckon with. It's just good governance versus bad governance, good leadership versus bad leadership, national solidarity versus no national solidarity. I mean, these are the, you know, it, it is depressing. We will. I, I could right not lesson. agree with you more. Hopefully, we will learn the right lesson. Now, one hundred percent. You know, let me add one wrinkle to that story um, that I just saw uh, today, covered by uh, Slate online. That you know, the South Korea story is really important and um, true. And then you look over to Singapore, which also originally did a really good job. Um, I think over the first couple months of the crisis, they um, they had reported just a few more than 500 cases of COVID-19. But uh, recently, they've had a, a significant increase in cases. And one of the reasons is that about 80% of the new cases that they have now, going from about 500 to over 10,000, so a significant increase, about eight in 10 of those can be traced to dorms where migrants live. The lack of thinking through, we're all humans, everyone can get it. And just because someone is you know, uh, poorer, that you don't need to protect them because we're all at risk, we're all in this together. And so that's a real case study as well that you can, even if you just fix things just for the rich people yeah. or the people that have their own homes, you actually aren't fixing things. So you need that whole that whole story there. And, yeah, and, and in that sense, uh, the virus is a really interesting metaphor for the economy, right? Yeah. It is, you know, like if a few people are well off and everyone else is poor, 
eventually the whole thing comes tumbling down. And likewise, uh, you know, there will be uh, really almost no place for the wealthy to hide, either physically or economically, if most poor people get sick, right? Yeah, we're all one economy and it's all, you know, staffed by humans. Well, Heather, we have gone uh, a little bit over time, but this has been uh, absolutely fabulous. Thanks so much. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye. 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 So, Nick, when we talk about uh, inequality in the economy, of course, uh, even the inequality is unequal. It's, <laughs> That's it, so well said. It's not just broadly uh, going yeah. out, oh, most people are unequal. It's disproportionately falls on, uh, the impact falls on women and people of color. Yeah, Goldie, I think you put that really well. In America, even our inequality is unequal. And, you know, basically people in our society that have the least power get taken advantage of the most. And if you are both disadvantaged by race and disadvantaged by gender too, you win the double whammy prize of exploitation. There's a double wage gap for yeah. uh, women of color. And today we get to talk to somebody who knows a lot about that. Michelle Holder is an assistant professor of economics at John Jay College, City University of New York, and recently the author of a report from the Roosevelt Institute, The Double Gap and the Bottom Line, African-American Women's Wage Gap and Corporate Profits. My name is Michelle Holder. I'm a labor economist by training. I look pretty much almost singularly at marginalized groups in the labor market, which would include women and people of color, um, the LGBTQ community. And I would like to plug, I just uh, did an op-ed for Ms. Magazine on uh, COVID and black women. Obviously, we have a broadly unequal economy, but we wanted to talk a bit about the inequality of the economic impact of this um, pandemic. I mean, I, you know, as a, as a labor economist looking at women and people of color in the American workforce, I already knew, you know, the broad strokes that women are paid less than men, that blacks are, you know, on average paid less than whites. And the intersection of the two black women, it's actually among the lowest paid demographic group. If we just put aside for a second the fact that Latinas and Native American women are also underpaid. So I wanted to get a sense of what that meant economy-wide, meaning, you know, I knew on an individual level that, you know, there, there are these impacts of wage disparities for women and, of course, for their families and, and it, obviously, for their single mothers, it affects their children. But I really wanted to wrap my head around what these wage disparities meant at an aggregate level and so that led me to um, the work that I uh, did for the Roosevelt Institute, where I looked at what I, I coined uh, the double gap. So what's the aggregate impact in the economy of these, of these gender and racial wage disparities for Black women? And so what I found was that, and mind you, this is a conservative estimate, number one, given my methodologies, and number two, I'm only looking at at compensation in the form of wages and salaries. I'm not looking at benefits. I'm not looking at time off. I'm not looking at other 
non-pecuniary benefits that employees can receive. And I use as my reference group, white non-Hispanic men, because according to the economic literature and lots of other literature, they, as a demographic, possess or appear to possess the best bargaining power with employers. And so they were the benchmark by which I measured how Black women were faring. And so what I found was that on an annual basis, or at least in 2017, the aggregate impact of the loss in wages to Black women, meaning what they would have earned given the skill sets they they possess, given their educational attainment, given their work experience, what they would have earned had they been white, non-Hispanic men, in the aggregate, the loss was $50 billion. Can I ask a question just for a point of clarity? How much of this disparity is between uh, th- this wage disparities between people performing the same type of job or uh, due to wage disparities between categories of jobs that uh, black women and, and women in general tend to do as opposed to men and white men? Right. So I'm so happy you asked that question. Very little of it. So what I do in in my analysis is try to compare apples to apples aside from the gender and racial differences. So I'm comparing, you know, black women with the same amount of education, the same amount of training, the same amount of work experience, working in the same jobs or very similar jobs as white non-Hispanic men. So let me give you a perfect example because I'm getting into economic wonk talk. So let me let we me We love back. that. That's okay. <laughs> We're a wonky okay. show. So one of the occupations that I found a huge disparity was in sales. So there's a big wage gap between black women and white men. Now, in that particular occupation, we can absolutely ascribe a, a significant chunk of the difference due to the fact that in that occupation, Black women tend to be in retail sales, whereas white men tend to be in sales occupations where they actually earn commission. So that's a situation where I was looking at the same occupation, but black women were in lower paying sub-occupations and white men were in higher paying sub-occupations. So that is a case where it's a similar job. Both workers have similar training, similar uh, amounts of experience in terms of length of working, uh, similar education, but one group is channeled into a higher paying occupation and the other group is channeled into a lower occupying occupation. I try to get as close to apples to apples as I can, putting aside the race and gender differences. It's interesting to keep in mind, especially at this uh, moment of uh, crisis where you have people heading into, having lost their jobs and heading into this with very few savings, not able to pay uh, the rent. There's a report out today that uh, a third of renters didn't pay rent in April, Uh, not able, so 40% of Americans not able to cover a uh, $400 emergency expense. At that higher wage, at that higher income, how much uh, more resilient uh, all Americans uh, would be, but certainly the most vulnerable who have uh, really gotten the least out of the economy over the past 40 years. We want to think of these wage disparities 
as sort of anecdotal, right? It's like family by family. And so, okay, yeah, one family has maybe 10 or $20,000 less than another family given these wage disparities. But, you know, that makes a difference when we are talking about instances where you need what economists call income smoothing so that you need to rely on, you know, what you were able to amass if you're able to amass anything when there are these times where you're laid off, where you lose your job. And so if you're talking about a community that is losing, you know, out on $50 billion per year, that's money that could be used for income smoothing. It could be used for childcare. It could be used for, a, you know, paying off debt. It could be used for these, you know, student loans. I mean, absolutely. Uh, the problem with these gender gaps and these wage gaps is it just makes these groups less likely to be able to survive when things like COVID-19 and the coronavirus, you know, wreck and ravage our economy. And and so now on top of this double gap, we have a pandemic economy that is disproportionately hurting low-wage workers. The same people who are suffering under the double gap are the ones that are most likely to be losing hours or losing their jobs right now. So I live in New York City and, you know, we're the epicenter of the epicenter, right? right? And so here, the the African-American community is fairly proportional to um, or actually we're, you know, we're more than proportional, right? African-Americans are about 13% of the U.S. population. Here in New York City, we're over 20%. So there are more than proportional, but Black women tend to be, you know, uh, employed in those occupations where, so for example, here in New York City, uh, personal care occupations have been completely shut down. You know, right. hair care, salons, barbershops, Lots and lots of, you know, low wage uh, or lower wage black men and women work in those occupations. Um, I know with our, you know, restaurants, that industry, it's definitely impacted the Latinx community in in the U.S. and to a lesser degree, I'm sorry, in New York City and to a lesser degree, the African-American community. But yeah, we do, you know, black women are in these occupations which are vulnerable to economic downturns but i will say that there are some uh there are some industries where it does feel like there is a little bit of protection for uh black women so for example black women uh tend to be overrepresented in the government sector and right now thank goodness there hasn't seemed to have been any scale backs in government employment in New York City. In fact, we need all of our government workers right now. Um, Black women also tend to be employed in occupations like as cashiers. And so all of our um, grocery stores and supermarkets and pharmacies, you know, all of that has to remain open right now. So there are some industries that given the nature of this virus, there seems to be a little bit of protection in terms of job loss, but that is not uh, the overwhelming story and the right. overwhelming narrative. So one of the themes that we've been exploring uh, on the podcast uh, these last days is that, you know, like, of course, we've been arguing for a long time that neoliberalism at the end of the day is not going to work out. Right. What the coronavirus 
pandemic does is make all of this stuff more vivid. I'm wondering if you could just help us understand the ways in which the coronavirus is making the stuff that you work on more vivid. You guys being some savvy guys and and chicks over there, I know you know that you know, uh, claims for unemployment insurance are just astronomical. So again, I'm just at the beginning of looking at what the labor market implications are for women and people of color. Um, but one thing I want to highlight, um, because I don't, you know, I, I'm, I can't imagine that I'm the, this is, I'm the only person this has occurred to, but recall, you know, when Katrina happened and we saw all of these, you know, poor African-Americans, you know, on rooftops begging for help. And, you know, at, after that catastrophe, it was very clear the group that really, you know, got the brunt of, of that tragedy, which were, it wasn't just black people, it was poor black people. And so, with COVID, what we're seeing in New York City is the folks who are dying from the from the disease are similar to what happened in Contrita. It's poor Black people. It's poorer Latinx people. And so, aside from you know the economics of it all, I'm I'm just looking. I'm also looking as another human being at the human toll and thinking, you know, this shouldn't happen. Something like Katrina should not happen again in the U.S., where it is poorer brown and black communities that are dying from, from this disease. And, and happening at a, at a national scale. This is Katrina at a national scale, and you're seeing these patterns reproduced throughout the country. You're seeing it in Michigan. You look in a city like St. Louis, where 100% of the COVID deaths have been African-Americans. Oh, okay. Yeah. You, you yeah. look at, at cities in Michigan where and in Wisconsin where uh, African-Americans and, and in New York, really, where they're dying at twice the rate uh, of their representation in the population. And it's everywhere. And it is it's it's not that the virus itself um, is it's is racist. It's that our economy is. And yeah. And poverty yeah. largely tracks color in this country and has forever. So what you're going to see, and I'm glad you pointed that out, is as this virus moves, you know, westward even more so, they're going to be poor white rural folks, poor white folks, rural or not, who will also succumb to, yeah. right? Um, mm -hmm. Because it's both poverty, it's here in New York City, you know, poverty does cross hatch with race, but in other parts of the country yeah, where that may not be the case, people. <laughs> yeah, there, it's going to happen there. It's going to, so, yeah, yeah. For sure. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, be, be the, uh, what, what do we call it, Goldie, the uh, benevolent dictator? Uh, talk <laughs> yeah. to us a little benevolent bit about, dictator question. Yeah. If you had to rewind the clock, uh, what do you wish the economy was a little bit more like? And going forward, what should we do? Oh, my gosh. Rewind the clock. <laughs> do you know how far back that clock would have to be rewound? <laughs> okay, okay. Let's make this an easier question. Uh, okay, thank okay. you. Okay, I'm going to make this an easier question for you. And just look going forward. 
uh, forget about all the, all the mistakes and evil we've done in the past. Uh, <laughs> we want to prevent, yeah. we want to prevent another pandemic from happening in the future. And we want to prevent it from impacting American families so unequally. What would you do to prepare us and uh, prevent another disaster like this? All right. So, of course, I, I'm, you know, I can't speak to really managing a, like a pandemic, right? But what I can speak to is improving the economy. And I think this is what you're asking. How do we improve the economy? How do we improve the condition of workers in general such that a pandemic like COVID doesn't result in disparate outcomes based on race, ethnicity, gender, that type of thing, right? Right. So one of the things that I write about in my paper in terms of this, you know, the, I mean, bottom line, what I'm talking about is lost resources to the black community because women are not paid as much as men and black women are definitely not paid as much as men. So for me, just grounded within the research I'm conducting, what I would like to see is that American corporations begin to grapple with the still existing gender wage gap. If corporate America can acknowledge, you know, writ large, number one, there is a gender wage gap. And I'm not even talking about black women at this point. I'm just talking about all women. If corporate America grapples with the issue that women writ large in the U.S. are underpaid and takes steps to chip away at this. And one step, one thing that, you know, corporate America could undertake is something I call a pay parity audit. Now, this would be voluntary, but what I'm essentially suggesting is that someone with the expertise come in, look at the employment and wage structure in a company, and determine whether or not there appears to be paid disparity issues based on gender, based on race. You know what? I think that is a terrific idea. I think it's a terrific idea. Uh, And by the way, there's the infrastructure to do it. There is absolutely the infrastructure to do it. Economists and and economists trained the way I'm trained, and I'm not advocating that I do it, but I'm just suggesting someone like me could easily, along with, you know, some assistance, of course, go into a corporation if they opened up their employment and wage data. You know, we are quantitatively trained to be able to determine there is a disparity based on a particular characteristic here. Michelle, is there any questions that we haven't asked that you wish we had? Uh, This is going to be a biggie. So uh, perk your ears up. So (laughs) at the end of my report. I mean, it's not, it, my report is not a policy one, right? It's an economic one. So I don't really get into policy recommendations. But one thing I did say at the end of the report, besides my idea about these pay parity audits, the other thing I say is, look, as women and, and as black women, we can take some action too. Not that it is our responsibility to close this humongous gender and racial wage gap or the double gap. It's not our responsibility. But there's, there's something we can do. And, and my recommendation is this. I suggest that black women, actually, I suggest all women need to, when they are in 
the position once our economy improves, whenever that's going to happen, where they are, you know, negotiating their salaries, their wages or negotiating a promotion. Women should routinely get into the habit of asking for at least 10% more than either they think they're worth, they are told they're worth, or that they research their worth. And the reason I landed on this 10% figure is because research shows that when women try to negotiate as, as aggressively as men, that there's a backlash. There can be a backlash. So what I, and, and, you know, we know from the data that the gender wage gap is, you know, about tw is 20 cents on the dollar. Women make 80 cents for every dollar men make. We know for black women, it's much larger. So, but what I don't suggest is that we then go in and try to ask for 20% more, 30% more, because we may encounter this backlash. But we need to routinely get into the habit of once we've decided this is what we think is fair, ask for more. <laughs> Not a lot more, just more. 5% more, 10% more, just more. Yeah, don't, don't negotiate like the Democrats in Congress. By negotiating with yourself first. That's a Nick. What what's what's your tagline? Uh, employers don't pay you what you're worth. We pay you what you have the power to negotiate. There you go. <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, joining us, Michelle. It's really nice to meet you. Oh, same here. It was a great a great discussion. Thanks, Scott. Great. Cool. Thank, thank you. you. You know, as I reflect on these conversations, I, I, again, I think that, you know, the thing that really just pops out for me is that this pandemic just has magnified the existing pathologies in, in the economy, that a crisis like this reveals all the cracks, all the weaknesses, and amplifies them, makes them worse. And I think that the long-term impact of this crisis is going to be, it's going to be big and bad for a lot of, for a lot of folks. Although, you know, out of that wreckage, ideally will come a new consensus about the role of government, the nature of the kind of uh, labor standards that we want to right. embrace in this country and uh, the kind of democracy we want. And, you know, because all of the, all of the pathologies that exist in our economy, all of the inequality, all the radical inequality in any case, the, the, all these things were policy choices that we made and that we can now undo if we choose to. And hopefully Americans draw the right lessons from this crisis and in mass uh, uh, force their political leaders to enact a new set of uh, policies that generate a new set of outcomes. Right. And, and, and I think it's really important also going forward to kind of redefine what we mean by prosperity. And that is not just raw economic growth or how many dollars you can hoard in your bank account, but economic resiliency. So going forward, a lot of our policies have to be based on, you know, not necessarily preventing uh, an economic downturn from ever happening again, but making us more resilient to the unforeseen events, the black swans, the, uh, the pandemics that we know will come in the future. And especially with the uh, climate warming, uh, we know there's going to be greater ecological disasters in the future. So 
I don't know. I hope we learn lessons from uh, this recession because we certainly didn't seem to learn any from the last one. In the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we get to uh, speak with the noted economist and Nobel Prize winner, Joseph Stiglitz, uh, about his thoughts about the economy and the coronavirus. Super looking forward to talking to Joe. He's a remarkable man. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.